continue our Bible study in Exodus. We've been in Exodus for many, many months, and I want you to open your Bible and go to Exodus chapter 39. We'll be done next week, so we've got uh, this week uh, in Exodus 39, and the next week we will finish the, this study in Exodus, and then we'll have a Christmas study, and then we're uh, continuing our Christmas series on Sunday morning, uh, and then after the holiday, beginning January 6th, on Sunday, we get back to the Gospel of Mark on Sunday morning. We'll be in Hebrews Sunday night. And I've chosen to go into Numbers. So we'll start Numbers the first week of uh, January for our study on Wednesday night. So we're going to go right from Exodus into Numbers. Numbers is all about the murmurings of the children of Israel. Now they've, they're going to go into the wilderness. They're at Mount Sinai here in Exodus, right? They're at the foot of the mountain receiving from the Lord all the instructions about the tabernacle, the this um, specific structure, this movable sanctuary where God has promised to come and dwell with them. Very important for us to understand that from the very beginning of our Bibles, God has wanted to be with his people, but because of their sin, there's been separation. The tabernacle creates this new nation of people that have been brought, delivered out of Egyptian bondage the past 400 years. And now they're at the foot of Mount Sinai, and God has given Moses specific instruction as we've studied. We've studied all this. You know this all. <clears throat> but he wants to uh, use them and their talents and their gifts to create, to build this tabernacle, and, and they built it. That's what this last few chapters have been all about, the building. The first few chapters in chapter 25 to 31 were about the design. So Moses on Mount Sinai gives uh, or pardon me, God gives Moses on Mount Sinai the design, the colors, the fabric, the, the size of everything. And these last chapters that we've been studying the last couple of weeks have been really all about chapter 35 to 40, we get the construction. So we're actually kind of, we, we get a repeat in a sense, repeat of what we've already studied, but it's important because God wants to show us that his people are now obedient because what happens in between the design phase and the building phase is the calf phase, if you know what I mean. They have their great moral sin, failure, where they, they start dancing around an idol, something that God told them not to do. And so God says, I'm not going with you guys. I, because if I, if I spend too much time with you, I'd kill you. I, I mean, that's seriously what the Lord says, because they've been so disobe disobedient to him. And so God has a purpose. He wants to be with his people. And so he shows his grace and he shows his mercy and allows them to give. And they do. And he builds the tabernacle. That's what we've been studying, the tabernacle. Tonight we come to this section on the garments of the priesthood. It's the garments of the priesthood that we're going to be looking at. We've already seen these. And I'm hoping that my pictures will uh, come through to help you understand that. But it's the garments of the, the sanctuary, the tabernacle that we're going to be looking at. Uh, tonight, and uh, it's, it's, it's a really great uh, uh, text of scripture to help us to understand obedience. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the word tonight. Thank you that we have a place to study your word, a place to worship you, a worship team that leads us in song and music and lyric to glorify you, and I'm grateful, Lord, for these that have come to seriously study your word tonight. So I, I pray, God, that you would speak to us and that you would help us, that you would use this text, Lord, to encourage us 
Uh, encourage the brokenhearted. Touch the sick. Deliver those that are oppressed. Lord, we believe you do all those things as we pray for those that we love. And tonight, Lord, we again ask that you teach us and instruct us in your word. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Now, I said this over and over and over. The reason God's directing his people to build a tabernacle is because he wants to be with them. That's the whole purpose of the tabernacle. And these people are going to build it by the end of Exodus chapter, this chapter 39. And then God in chapter 40 is in all his glory is going to come and descend and dwell in it, which is the whole point. The theme of Exodus is is worship and that God is going to dwell with his people. That's what God has always wanted to do. We, in the New Testament, he comes to dwell with his people. Here's the verse, John 1:14. the word became flesh and he dwelt among us. That's God's heart. That word dwelt, by the way, skenoo, it literally means to tabernacle or tent with or occupy the same space as you and I. That's what God wants to do. It's our sin that separates us, but God wants to dwell with us from the Old Testament, new. Remember how the old and new, it's the same God, same truths. And the Old Testament reveals or talks about someone coming. The New Testament, someone came in Jesus. He wants to be with us. He dwells among us. God came to live among his people. And now, in the church age, for us as believers... For you and I, what does it mean that God dwells with us? Well, he dwells in his church. And I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about people. He dwells in people. Here's the verse, Colossians 1.27. Paul says, To them God willed to make known what are the riches of the glory of the mystery among the Gentiles, which is, here's the mystery, Christ in you, the hope of glory. So now in the New Testament, we have the hope of God in us. We have Christ in us. He's dwelling in us. That's the beautiful truth about the Bible. The conversion of the individual, the the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling Christ living in me. It's not me who lives, it's Christ. And the, the more I let Christ live, the more joy I experience in life. In spite of circumstances and sickness and difficulties, it's Christ in me, in you, Now, last week, again, we looked at the the construction of the tabernacle, the curtains, the utensils, the altar, all of the things that were in the table of showbread, the menorah, the ark, all those things. We kind of went over those things again. Tonight, in this chapter, it's the priestly garments that we're going to be looking at. And again, you need to get the picture here that they're intricately woven together with fine fabric, beautiful, ornate colors, gold and, and, and uh, uh, gemstones. So remember, the, the tabernacle is a gorgeous structure. It's a beautiful, colorful structure. It's not a planned, plain, uh, but in the middle of the desert, think of the, the kind of brown and gray backdrop to this gorgeous blue fabric and white fabric. It's a glorious uh, uh, temple made out of tent material. And And the children of Israel will eventually make a permanent structure when they get to the promised land. But now they're moving. They're going to be moving for 40 years, as we know. They don't know it yet, but we know. And as they move through, they're going to move the tabernacle. And the tabernacle represents God's presence with them. The fire that is over them miraculously, protecting them, the God's nightlight, you know, over the the, the two million people in the wilderness would move. 
So they had to move. The cloud would move. They'd move with the cloud. So they have to pack up the tabernacle. Remember all the rings and all the poles and all the, the, the mechanism to transport the, the movable sanctuary. Well, now we come to the, the garments again. We're going to look at this again. But it's important to understand that the, the, the whole thing of the tabernacle is very functional. It's, it's there to do a function That's so that people could come and sacrifice. They could meet God. They could make sacrifice, make atonement for their sins and have that relationship with God. That's why the tabernacle is actually called the tent of meeting. It's where the, the uh, high priest would go in and make sacrifice for the people. It's where the people would go into the courtyard and, and make sacrifice or give their sacrifice to the priest. And the priest, boy, what a job. The butcher, he's really the butcher, He's just sacrificing and killing all day long in the blood. I know it's hard to imagine and think, but, but without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of what? Sin. See, we know that. God established that. And so very functional in, in everything. And now we see this, these priestly garments here. Um, God is, is going to... Uh, uh, He's designed them, and now they're going to uh, put them together. But here's the interesting thing about this whole text as we kind of make our way to this chapter and through the construction and now to the priestly garments. God has promised them that they're going to move with this movable sanctuary, and he's going to lead them to this place. Here is the verse in Exodus 33.3. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, for I will go up in your midst, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. This is that verse that, that uh, God was relating to Moses as, as uh, Moses comes down off the mountain. The people are dancing naked around a golden calf, and, and Moses reports back to God, and God says, I'm not going with him because if I spend time with him, I'll kill him. I'll consume him on the way. And, and Moses becomes a type of Christ. He's a mediator. He mediates. Remember, he says, he says, God, these are your people. No one could deliver them like you do. You miraculously move them from, from their bondage by these wonderful plagues that you brought upon the Egyptians and finally the death angel. And, and they, they release, they, these are your people, God. I couldn't do this. I'm, I'm just a man. He begins to intermediate between the people and God. And God says, because I know you, Moses. I'll go with the people. I'll come and be with them. But this tabernacle now represents something very important because here's the picture of the tabernacle. And you'll notice again as I show you this picture that there's two rooms. Remember the two rooms of the temple, the, the larger room with the menorah, the showbread, the altar of incense, and then the veil, the veil, the all-important veil that separated the holy place from the Holy of Holies, where the presence of God dwelt there in the ark where the mercy seat is and where the high priest would only enter once a year, Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, sprinkle the blood for the nation's sins. And so there's that veil, that separation. This is what provides God to be with his people. There's a veil between the sin of the people and a holy, righteous God. And you remember when Jesus was willingly sacrificed when he cru was crucified there on Calvary's cross, that the earth shook, that there was noise all around the globe, 
that the veil of the temple was rent from top to bottom. It's that veil. And that represents the fact that there's now access to God. Here's the verse. It's Matthew 27. Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked, and the rocks were split. When Jesus died on the cross for our sin, he became that final sacrifice. He paid the price, the penalty of our sin. It was, it was finished, he said, to tell us died, paid in full, and thereby he paid for our sin. So the design of the tabernacle has that in mind. There's separation between God and his people in that tent of meeting with that veil. The sins of the Israelites could be atoned for, but they had to be atoned for again. They had to be atoned for again next year, over and over and over. All of these things foreshadowed the coming of Jesus Christ, the Savior who would come to the earth, God becoming flesh and dwelling with us to die willingly on Calvary's cross to atone for everyone who would believe by faith in him. The, the picture, the beauty, the clarity, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the story is just fabulous. It's, it's miraculous. One other note is that the, last week when we were reading the description of the building, you're, you're to understand that it's more than just a tent of meeting. It's not just a tent. I was hunting in Montana a few weeks ago with Barry and my nephew. We were in a tent, a walled tent. We had a, we had a, uh, a stove, a wood stove that kept us warm in the eight-degree temperatures, the blowing snow. Who would do that? I mean, it's ridiculous. But that's not the kind of tent we're talking about. We're talking about a very ornate, very specifically designed with, with tons of, of materials. There was a, over a ton of gold, a couple tons of gold, and four tons of silver, and three tons of bronze. And then this, this master builder, Bezial, who is gifted by God to put together and, and to carve and to beat out the gold and to form and shape. This is not a camp tent. It's a very ornate, very beautiful structure. Again, I see it in the wind in my mind in the desert just pulling and, and the, the curtains that surrounded the courtyard and the, the tent of meeting and, and inside the beautiful embroidered cherubim on the blue fabric and the red clear fabric and the white fabric, just the translucent. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous structure here. And now we come to this section where uh, we're going to see Bezel again. He is the master builder. He's the artist, and he's going to be making these garments. So we're going to begin here with the ephod in verse 1 through 7. Again, I'm going to read these real fast, so I, that's why the long intro, but I, I, I want you to understand of the blue, purple, and scarlet thread, they made garments for ministry. So these same threads that were made in the, uh, made the curtains, made the interior of the tabernacle are now used. This, these real intricately woven uh, fabrics are used for the garments for ministry, for ministering in the holy place and made the holy garments for Aaron as the Lord had commanded Moses. He made the ephod, the ephod, it's really ephod, of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and of fine woven linen. And they beat the gold into thin sheets and cut it into threads 
to work it in with the blue, purple, and scarlet thread. Just think about that. The, the glistening gold that was interwoven in the fabric, the, the shiny, the beauty, the, I mean, this, again, this tent reflected the beauty of God, this, this garment that Aaron is going to wear, and we saw how the, his sons, Aaron's sons, are the ones that are going to uh, do other ministry. They're not the high priest. Aaron's the high priest. But his sons had garments and tunics and hats and different things too. But we're going to see this garment and how it's made intricately. It's beautiful. It says, verse 4, they made shoulder straps for it to couple it together. It was coupled together at its edges, two edges. And the intricately woven band of the ephod that was on it was the same workmanship woven of gold, blue, purple, and scarlet thread and a fine woven linen as the Lord had commanded Moses. There's the second time that phrase has come up, as the Lord commanded Moses. Moses really wants you to understand. He's the one writing this, right, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So he wants you to understand this isn't his idea. These are blueprints. I'm following the plan. God gave me this plan. I'm being completely obedient to every detail, as the Lord uh, commanded Moses. And so Aaron, he's set apart, again, by God for the ministry of, of being the high priest. But his garment's now going to typify glory, the glory of God. His garment's going to typify the majesty and the holiness of God. And we, we have church in a storefront. I remember when I was growing up in the 60s, churches, it was very common for churches to have, you know, a, a, a traditional American-style roof with a, a large uh, choir loft and and the church that I went to had a beautiful uh, uh, pulpit area with, with uh, mosaic tile that glistened. And, and we had pipe organ faux, faux ones, but they were pipe organ, uh, uh, you know, the tubes, you know. So it, it looked real churchy. It was, it was beautiful. It was, it was gorgeous. I, I love going into those churches. When we were in Rome, we went to a lot of those churches this last spring. Beautiful, ornate. I, I love that. But God here really wants people to understand that this is important to him, and he wants it to look beautiful. In the New Testament church, why is it different? Why don't we have all this stuff? Why? Because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. God dwells in us. He wants the beauty and holiness to be here, not here. Although I really like the trees I made and Barry and I put together a few years ago. Those are cool, huh? But, but the holiness and, and righteousness and beauty... We're the sanctuary. This is my heart, is the sanctuary of God. It's the temple of the Holy Spirit. And so that's why we don't spend all that time at Calvary chapels, and, and most modern churches don't spend too much time overdoing it. But there are people, I have friends and others that just don't feel comfortable in a, just a standard stock church like ours. They, they want the cathedral. They want the, the grandeur. And, and that's a preference issue, right? We still have fellowship. But it's a preferential thing. But in this tabernacle, God has designed it to typify Christ, his beauty, his majesty, his holiness. The writer of Hebrews says this in Hebrews 10, and every priest stands ministering daily and offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But this man, speaking of Christ, after he had offered one sacrifice for sins forever, sat down at the right hand of God. The glory and the righteousness of Jesus is seen in a small way in the garments and the glory and of that, the ephod and the, 
robe that we're going to be depicting here. All these garments, they just typify Jesus, the they're foreshadowing Jesus coming, and he's going to be the high priest. Aaron typifies. Moses typifies. Jesus is going to be and is our high priest. So this picture of the priest I have here to show you, again, it's just a drawing. We're going to describe all of those parts. There's a hat. There's the, the headband. There's the the ephod, which is the robe, the blue robe. There's, there's a garment that goes around, looks like chain mail. There's all these different parts, the bells. It's hard to see around the hem of his garment, the bells. But we're going to look at all of those things. Look at verse 6. And they set onyx stones enclosed in settings of gold. They were engraved, as signets are, are engraved, with the names of the sons of Israel. He put them on the shoulders of the ephod as memorial stones for the sons of Israel as the Lord had commanded Moses. So you see the, the little, uh, the breastplate we're going to talk about next, but you see on the picture the gold chains and then the shoulder pad things with the uh, stones and the names of the children of Israel. Um, it was Josephus that said on one side he had the eldest sons, and on the other side the younger sons of the children of Israel, the 12 tribes. I, I don't know, you can't see. Um, there's no other record of other than the names that are on the breastplate, uh, on the stones that are described here in verse 8. And he made the breastplate artistically woven like the workmanship of a, the ephod of gold, blue, purple, scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. They made the breastplate square by doubling it. A span was its length, a span, its width when doubled. And they set it in four rows of stones, a row of sardis, a topaz, and emerald on the first row. So different colors in rows. The second row, verse 11, turquoise, sapphire, diamond. Third row, jacinth, uh, agate, and amaseth. And, and verse 13, the fourth row, a beryl, onyx, and jasper stone. They were enclosed in settings of gold. So the, the stones are set in gold and bowls and this is very ornate, very beautiful, very polished and, and gorgeous. Remember, Bezalel was a craftsman, and he put these things together. He was gifted by the Lord to make these special and beautiful. There were 12 stones, verse 14, according to the names of the sons of Israel, according to their names engraved like a signet, each one with its own name according to the 12 tribes. So the breastplate, here's a picture of that now close-up of the breastplate. And again, this is just, we don't have a picture, but that's a pretty good square with the different stones, with the different settings of gold behind it, with the names. Again, it's, it's just an a, a artistic rendering of it, but the gemstones had the names of the 12 tribes, and, and it just represented the names of the people of God are right on the chest of the high priest, just like your name and my name is written in, and, and is close to the heart of God. There's a representation here to everything, again, symbolic of the high priest. He goes before, the peop before God, he represents God before the people once a year and makes atonement for them. And so having the names of the nation of Israel on his chest as he walked in the presence of God is meaningful, is significant. 
I love the fact that God knows my name. He's a God that knows you individually. You're not just a a member of the body of Christ somewhere in the universe. He knows you individually. He numbers the hair on your head. I mean, that's how much he knows you, for those of you that have hair on your head. He knows us. He knows your name. He's a personal God and wants to dwell with you. The beautiful picture here as the high priest would go and mediate for the people before God. And then notice how this breastplate is is attached. Again, here's the picture of the priest. I have another picture of a priest here. And you'll see the garment. Again, we'll hold that up as we read verse 15. And they made chains for the breastplate at the ends, like braid cords of pure gold. They also made two settings of gold on two gold rings and put the two rings on the ends of the breastplate. And they put the two braided chains of gold in the two rings on the ends of the breastplate. The two ends of the braided chains they fastened in the two settings and put them on the shoulder straps of the ephod in front. And they made two rings of gold and put them on the two ends of the breastplate on the edge of it, which was on the inward side of the ephod. So you you can see a little bit of that up there. It's hard to see the chains and how it attaches to the shoulder straps, but that's what's being described here. They made two other gold rings, put them in the shoulder staff underneath the ephod, toward the front, the right, the seam above the intricately woven band of the ephod. And they bound the breastplate by means of its rings to the rings of the ephod with a blue cord so that it would be above the intricately woven bands of the ephod and the breastplate would not come loose from the ephod as the Lord had commanded Moses. So this is all kind of attached. It's got rings, it's got clips. We would use Velcro, right? They did much more artistic God had created this much more artistic way to present this. But it's a beautiful woven fabric. It's a gorgeous, glowing, shining, brilliant gemstones and gold. This wonderful ephod and the breastplate and and all of that. So the ephod was all gathered together there at the shoulders. That first picture, go back to that first picture. I think it's a little easier, the breast. And you see how there's the ephod and then the gold and then the the, gold. uh, stones that were like these little shoulder pads on top. It, all, it was all connecting together, and then it was held tightly there so that when the priest entered the Holy of Holies to make atonement for the people, he wore this in the names of God. The 12 tribes were represented before the Lord. Now, verse 22 through 26 describes the robe. Notice the robe. He made the robe of the ephod a woven work all of blue. And there was an opening in the middle of the robe, like the opening in a coat of mail, with a woven binding all around the opening. That must have been beautiful, this binding all the way around. So it would not tear. We have ripstop nylon. They put this beautiful binding on this garment. I mean, it's just very, very intricately done here. And they made bells of pure gold and put the bells between the pomegranates on the hem of the robe all around between the pomegranates and the bell and the pomegranates and a bell and a pomegranate in you know, succession there all the way around the hem of the garment. So these are little golden pomegranates and golden bells that are like, like little you know, things that hang off, uh, 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 what are those called? Charm brace, little charms. And they would go all the way around the hem of the garment. And so the gold is going to rattle, right? It's gonna, the bells are going to ring. There's going to be noise when the priest is doing his work. It's, it's, you're going to hear this tinkling, tinkling, ringing as he's walking through 
uh, the Holy of Holies, and then as he walked beyond the veil once a year, that tinkling sound uh, would continue. Everyone would hear the, the, his sons, in this case Aaron's sons, the other priests would hear what was going on inside there the, 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 as the priest did his work there, which was a dangerous job. Talk about a dangerous job. The high priest that went in to, into the presence of God. It's a very scary thing to be in the presence of God. As a sinner, as a wretched man, I, I mean, I'm born again. I'm forgiven. I, I, I don't know. Not until I have the righteousness of Christ would I ever want to be near God. He's holy. He's true. And his presence is in that tabernacle. And when that guy went in there with his little bells on his robe, and those bells stopped ringing, the guys outside were wondering, is either he stopped or he's dead? And some believe that those bells were purposely put there to, you know, indicate that very thing. There's a, there's a fable, a Jewish thought that they would tie a rope around his leg if he just had a lot of sin in his life. He'd, he'd walk in the presence of God and die instantly. They could drag him out by the rope. I don't know if that's true. I've heard that before. But those bells, it's very interesting in that robe. Then we have the, the, the turban and the tunic. Notice in verse 27, they made tunics artistically woven of fine linen and Aaron, for Aaron and his sons. So some of these garments are for the sons of Aaron that did the priestly work. A turban of fine linen, uh, linen exquisite hats of fine linen, short trousers of fine woven linen and a sash of fine woven linen with blue, purple, scarlet thread made by the weaver. So the sons of the high priest wore this sash. They had a white garment, and they had this sash, this beautiful sash that, that emulated, looked like the high priest's garment. So the, there was a beautiful uniform in a sense there. The tunic was the undergarment. The turban was the head part and the sash was either over the shoulder or it kind of tied everything together like a belt. Verse 30, then they made the plate of the holy crown of pure gold and wrote on it an inscription like the engraving of a signet, holiness to the Lord. So there's the headband. We talked about that before. But on this hat was a band, and I go back to that picture. It kind of shows it. Again, it's just a rendering the picture of the priest. There's the hat, and then there's a band that goes right above his eye there that says holiness uh, to the Lord there, and they tied it to the blue cord, fastened it above the turban as the Lord had commanded Moses. There's that phrase again, as the Lord commanded Moses. So the crown or the headband, pure gold, holiness to the Lord. It was a constant reminder for the priest that his Ministry was to be holy, to be separate, to be taken seriously, the ministry of the priests there, and that he, being set apart for this ministry, needed to be holy and, and pure in his life. Now, it's really important also to understand that these garments that we're looking at, and I need to apply this, how does this apply to me as a Christian today? And there, there is some application for us, but this garment typifies the holiness and righteousness of an individual, but more importantly, it typifies Christ, his holiness and his righteousness. Again, all of these things 
are a shadow of things to come. Here's the verse I used for that, Colossians 2. They're a shadow of things to come, but the substance is Christ. All the things in the Old Testament were written for us so that we would see and recognize Christ. Even the headband that spoke of the holiness to the Lord there typified Christ. He's holy. Remember in our study on Sunday morning when I was talking about the virgin birth and the importance of that doctrine. It's important for you to understand that and believe that. Jesus was born of a virgin. If he was not born a virgin, of a virgin, then he would have a human nature, his father. But he wasn't. He was uniquely implanted in the womb of, of a, a human by the Holy Spirit. And that makes him sinless so he could go to the cross and die for our sin. So all of these things speak of, of the holiness of God and the holiness of Christ. And I, again, I love the parallel of the holiness of the priestly garments because in the New Testament, you and I as, as believers, before Christ, we use the term BC, before Christ, we were living in, in darkness, we were living in sin, we were living in trespasses. And before Christ, we, we had the close of the world. But Paul tells us in the New Testament that we're to put off all that old stuff. We're to take it all off and put on the new man that's made in holiness and righteousness. Here's the, the verse here in Ephesians 4. Paul says that you put off concerning your former conduct, the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind, and that you put on the new man, which is created according to God in righteousness and holiness. It's the, the, the picture there is changing your clothes. When you come to Christ, you repent of your sin, but you've got to take the old clothes off. You've got to get rid of those shoes that used to take you to those places that were sin-filled. You've got to take off that old fabric and that old man that's deceitful and, and lust-filled. It's a decision you make. It's a decision of volition. You take it off, and then you put on that righteous garment. That's what Paul is, is equating righteousness and holiness to. You've got, you got to take off the old and put on the new. Again, in the Old Testament, it's this clothing that we're looking, this garment of the high priest and his sons so they can minister holiness to the Lord. In the New Testament, the believer by faith is washed is changed, is converted, is regenerated, all by a work of God. And then we ourselves are to make decisions. We've got to get rid of the old. We've got to leave it behind. We've got to take it off and put on that new garment of the new man. Now, this chapter ends here in verse 32 with the work completed. Notice verse 32. Thus all the work of the tabernacle of the tent of meeting was finished. And the children of Israel did according to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so they did. And they brought the tabernacle to Moses, in pieces, by the way. The tent and all its furnishing, its clasps, its boards, its pillars, its bars, its sockets, the covering of ram skins dyed red, the covering of badger skins, the veil of the covering, the ark of the testimony with the poles, the mercy seat, the table and its utensils, the showbread, the pure gold lampstand with its lamps, the lamps set in order, 
all its utensils and the oil for light, the gold altar, the anointing oil, the sweet incense, the screen of the temple or tabernacle door, the bronze altar, its grate of bronze, its poles and utensils, the lava, its base, the hangings of the court, its pillars, its sockets, the screen for the court gate, its cords, its pegs, all the utensils for the service of the tabernacle, for the tent of meeting and the garments of ministry to minister to the holy place and the holy garments of Aaron, the priest and his sons, garments to minister as priests. So there it is. It's all there. It's not put together, but it's all there. All the pieces are there. Why isn't it put together? Notice Moses' inspection here in verse 42. According to all that the Lord had commanded Moses, so the children of Israel did all the work. So now Moses looks at it all, and they start putting it together. Then Moses looked over the work, and indeed they had done it, just as the Lord commanded. Just so they had done it, and Moses blessed them. What, a, what an awesome moment. They've gone from a covenant-breaking people, and God's shown them grace and mercy, and now they've donated and helped and built and put together all these pieces, and they're constructing the temple. And Moses looks at it, and he says, yeah, that's exactly what, what God told me to build. And you guys did it. You, you all worked on that. Remember, it was given, the design was given by God back in chapter 25. And then Moses becomes the inspector of all the different articles. That's that list that we just read. Now, this whole section about building the tabernacle teaches us a couple important things. Here's some application at the end here. Number one, it shows us the mercy of God, that God allows his people the opportunity to do something that they never deserved to do in the first place. He allowed them to have their hand in in his work. As I serve the Lord daily in this fellowship, I am privileged, and I thank God that he allows me to put my hands to God's work. You guys get to do that tonight. You're going to put your hands to God's work, and we're going to move those pews. Think of it that way, because I need you. (laughs) But it's true. When you serve the Lord, you're putting your hands to God's work. We don't deserve that. We're wretched. We're poor. We're blind. We're naked. We're sinners. And yet God allows us to participate. It's an amazing truth, especially with these people dancing around Nude. I mean, really, when you read that whole, and I, I went through that in detail, the people were dancing naked around that golden calf that Aaron had made. He was forced to make it, so he made it. And the people danced naked around it. When Moses comes off the mountain with the Ten Commandments, he breaks the Ten Commandments because they had broken God's covenant. And instead of killing all those people in the desert because of their disobedience, instead of death in the desert, they get grace in the desert because God is a gracious God. God is a loving God. God is a forgiving God. That's what he wants for you and for me. And so we see his mercy displayed right here. And they received his grace and forgiveness. I I love that. God wants to be with them so bad, he forgives them. He wants to be with you so bad, he forgives you. Beautiful picture. Secondly, they're given a second chance at obedience, obviously, right? Right? Verse 32 says, thus all the work of the tabernacle, the tent of meeting was finished, and the children of Israel did according to 
all that the Lord had commanded. The emphasis in that text right there in verse 32 is that they did it. And they completed it. And Moses says here that the people did all the work the Lord commanded. And we see this over and over. That's why I highlighted it as we went through the chapter here. Seven times in the chapter. Look at verse 26 at the very end. As the Lord commanded. Verse 29 at the very end. As the Lord commanded. Seven times in this chapter, Moses makes that statement. The people did. This time. This time. They did everything that God commanded. This time, they were obedient. And so Moses here is emphasizing the importance of being obedient. And I love that truth. For you and I as Christians, every moment and every decision that we make is to be an act of obedience to God and to his word. That's what holiness is. You're obeying God. Wisdom, as portrayed wonderfully in the Proverbs. Get it. Get understanding. Get wisdom. The knowledge of the Holy One is the way to understanding. If you really want to understand things, know God. Give your life to God. Trust in God. Obey His Word. It's all about obedience for you and I as New Testament believers. And you remember the story. It was King Saul, the first king of Israel. Samuel comes to him and He says, uh, Saul, did you destroy the Amalekites and everything as God commanded? You went to war with them. God was going to give you victory. Did you destroy? He told you to destroy the booty. He don't bring any animals back. Kill them all. Kill the people. Wipe out their idols. Destroy it. That's my judgment against those people, and I want you to carry it out. But Saul got greedy, and he brought back some of the animals and some of the gold from the idols. He, He was greedy. Even though Samuel told him that he had to obey God, King Saul, the first king of Israel, disobeyed. So here's what Samuel says to Saul in 1 Samuel 15. Here it is behind me on the screen. Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he also has rejected you from being king. Obedience is really important, church. About every third song on my, I listen to jazz Christmas music, is Christmas, you know, uh, not hymns, but just redone songs with saxophone and cool rhythms, and I, I enjoy that as well as the beautiful Christmas hymns. But one of the Christmas songs is, you better watch out because he's coming to see who's naughty or nice, right? Right? That's part of the song. And it's just a children's song. But the truth is, is God is watching And he's desiring for his children that he wants to dwell with. He wants them to be obedient. And with obedience, God will bless. Moses looks at the obedience of the people. They're giving, their generosity. Remember, they gave more than they needed to. 
their building, their construction. Moses looks at it, he blesses the people. Oh, that was perfect. That's exact. You, made, you did such great work on the altar. You did such great work on the linen. You cracked the fabric of the ephod. Just per- he blessed the people for their obedience. That's the point here in this last chapter. The people were obedient. God wants you and I to be obedient. So what does God do when we're obedient? He shows up. In Exodus chapter 40, where we're going to be next week, we're going to end this with God coming and all His glory filling this tabernacle. It's a glorious truth. Picturing or foreshadowing Jesus who, in John 1.14, He came as a man. The Word became flesh and He dwelt among us. Beautiful truth, Old Testament and new. And it depends on your obedience. Christian, be obedient, trust in the Lord, obey his word, he'll bless you. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the word tonight. I thank you for this text of scripture. I thank you for, even though it's a repeated section, Lord, the truth about the construction and the people's joy in obedience and obeying your commands and and building and constructing exactly to your design. And the parallel, Lord, for us as believers, that we, Lord, would be obedient to your word, that we would be more like Jesus Christ in all that we do and say, that you'd help us, Lord, to put off the old garment and put on the new so that we might honor you and bless you. How grateful we are, O Lord, for your word. And how grateful we are at this season where we celebrate the incarnation. We're so grateful. Make us obedient and bless us, Lord, as we trust in you, as we follow you. In Jesus we pray. Amen. Let's all stand together.